Hey, Ginger. Hey, Esther. How's it going? It's going fabulous. Wow, we have a great guest for our podcast today, don't we? We sure do. Why don't you tell us who we have? One of my favorites, one of my favorites. So backstory is when my husband and I moved to downtown Chicago, right after we got married, uh, we moved into this wonderful, big, giant building in the West Loop that was formerly owned by Annie Properties. And right next door to us is this really delicious restaurant. And we were like, oh, my God, how convenient is this? And, of course, across the street was Oprah Studio. And then it was sort of a, you know, at the time, an area that was a little bit desolate. There was nobody there. There was nobody walking dogs. There was no people. There was no children. But, you know, we were really young. And um, the other piece around the story is that this is the place um, that we actually cut our first album with my band, Utah Carol, our, our very first record. Monumental. It was pretty huge. And, um. you know, I was working in corporate at the time. Um, but we had a little community there because of this cute little restaurant called Wishbone. It was a place where I felt at home. And I say that because, you know, my husband and I, you know, we were really young, just married. Um, you know, we're in a, a multinational, multi-ethnicity um, relationship. And, you know, a lot of times when you're black and I, you know, clearly identify as black, but you walk into some restaurants and you sort of have a sensation that maybe you're not really comfortable. But I'll tell you, Wishbone was not one of those places. I mean, we walked in and immediately felt at home, like we were with a family. And I thought, wow, this is great. And we ate there all the time. And so right now, I'm really excited because the owner and founder of this restaurant is here with us today. And we're going to have a wonderful conversation around this remarkable restaurant that I've always felt comfortable. And of course, the food is the best. I'm Ginger Birkenbuehl. And I'm Esther Ikoro, And we're the hosts of the Honest Field Guide podcast. Entrepreneurship is no joke. The journey is full of anticipation, failure, hope, and disappointment. You'll make money and be totally broke at the same time. The Honest Field Guide podcast tells you the truth. We know being an entrepreneur is crazy hard and you will sometimes cry at dinner. Listen in to be inspired, laugh, and learn how to really thrive on your business journey. She sparkled. She danced in the sand. I fell apart. She slipped through my hands. She sparkled. Joel Nixon, though raised in New Jersey, Joel learned to love the South through visits to his grandparents' home in North Carolina. At age 14, he began working at a soul food restaurant in Teaneck, New Jersey. A dozen years later, having amassed a solid cooking background that includes stints in elegant San Francisco and New York City restaurants, and terms as head chef at several large resorts, he opened Wishbone in a storefront on Grand Avenue in July of 1990. His Southern Reconstruction cooking, Dixie standards like shrimp and grits, blackened catfish, and Carolina crab cakes, prepared with a minimum of heavy oils, deep frying, and added sugar, with its mix and match of side dishes such as sautéed spinach, mashed sweet potatoes, and macaroni and cheese, caught on fast. Not long after, a second wishbone opened in 1992 with 100 seats at 1001 West Washington at a time when Chicago's West Loop seemed an uncharted territory. Wishbone was an early participant in the emergence of the neighborhood from a commercial area to one of the city's culinary hotspots. In November of 2018, Wishbone relocated after 27 years at 1001 West Washington Boulevard. Their new home was located at 161 North Jefferson Street, six blocks east. Next year will mark Wishbone's 30th year in business. 
I will say it was always special that we had such a good city feel to that place back in those days because the people living there now have no idea of what it used to be like when, you know, in the early 90s and how much has changed over there. But uh, I have nothing but great memories there. In addition to the food being amazing, the place is always packed and uh the crowd was extremely diverse, and which is what uh, I loved. Yeah. Everybody was chilling, great service, top notch, consistent all the time. But the vibe was really what you know kept us going back there is that we felt comfortable. And I'm telling you, it's hard for some people to believe, but there are restaurants that you walk in, um, especially when you're a person of color, mm. and it doesn't feel relaxing. You know, it doesn't feel relaxing. You feel judged. And that was a restaurant. And it still continues to be one because, of course, you know, you have a new location. But I felt chill there. Yeah. How did you do it? We really wanted to be an everyday eatery. And that was kind of the main goal. You know, we used to laugh that we, we got the cops and the robbers. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I will say it had a good city feel. But I, I still say we're, we definitely have a diverse crowd. You know, and it, it it does add to the atmosphere. And I think that's what some people miss about the old places that it had. It, it was that worn, but it had that kind of ambience vibe to it. And uh, it's kind of important to stay a, a Chicago restaurant. Mm-hmm. So how do you approach culture? Because 30 years is a long time. And I know you have a Southern cooking background and you talked about the diversity of the types of people that come into Wishbone. Mm -hmm. So did you come out of the gate saying, we want to create a space that looks like this? Well, I mean, of course, you know, when I first opened, you just want anybody that will come in the door and spend money. But no, it was important to me that uh, even at Grand and Wood, our our first Mm -hmm. restaurant, you know, like I'd open at five in the morning, you know, we'd get the truck drivers and stuff like that. So our main goal was to not be pretentious, that we were going to give people real cooked food in an unpretentious and good value. And I think with that base, it did bring in all kinds of people. I remember when I was eating in the restaurant quite a bit, like I said, I ate there a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, It just felt like a safe space. And I think that's what always has struck me about Wishbone. And I'd love to understand, you know, how you did that. I mean, did you sit everybody down in a circle and say, kumbaya, we're going to maintain this presence? And Or was it just a natural migration? Or do you just attract people that understand your vibe? Or what's happening there? Well, I was worried about it and moving into, you know, a much more modern space. But we, you know, with the staff... We joke that, you know, we hire for friendliness and pray for ability. But, you know, it's there's some truth to it. And, you know, there's certain things you can't teach. But, you know, making people feel welcome is important. Uh, and a big part of the ambiance is, you know, on a Sunday brunch, you get the families, you get the people from St. Pat's to, you know, the Baptist church is getting out. You know, it has its... Uh, it's important to us, I'll put it that way, that we do have a, a diverse clientele and and staff. But remaining a city restaurant is important to us, so I, I hope that gets translated, and that's obviously what we want. So, at what point in your life did you say to yourself, "All right, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna cook. This is my passion place. This is what uh, I want to do." 
Well, it is kind of a funny story. We, you know, we, the family moved to, uh, I mean, we moved from North Carolina to New Jersey. And in New Jersey, my first job, one of my friends, uh, his mother had a soul food restaurant. And so I started working there when I was 14. And, you know, actually, after cleaning chitlins, I should have got out of the business then. But uh, <laughs> Did you say cleaning chitterlings? <laughs> yeah, that was... It was a gruesome job, let me tell you. But it went with my personality. You know, I was kind of a high-strung kid and, you know, probably attention deficit, if they could call it. You know, nobody called it that then. But, I, you know, school was definitely not my thing. And I liked the restaurant business and that every day was different. I liked the idea of cooking. Uh, and I will say my mother and my grandma, you know, I had a – I grew up with good food. And um, what was the food like? My grandmother was actually French. I mean, we used to tease her because she would try to do everything French style, but she took to a lot of the southern food. And uh, my mother's shrimp and grits was nothing like our shrimp and grits, but it was, you know, it was kind of leftovers. Or, although we did get abused with okra. And then actually moving from North Carolina to New Jersey. And being right outside of New York City, um, that opened up all new territory. So, wow! So, when you were going through your food journey in the South, was there someone in your family experimenting and going to restaurants and and reading books? I mean, how do you no. how do you become this Southern cooking person when you're <laughs> you know, from France to North Carolina, like how does that process take place? Because I grew up watching my mother cook. She let me in the kitchen wow. and I stood there and watched everything that she did. My grandmother also cooked and I watched her cook. My brother cooked a lot. So I watched everyone in the kitchen doing things, which is why I developed the love of cooking and understood and respected fresh cooked meals. And even when I, when in the early part of when I was raising my children, I used to make baby food from scratch. So what was that like to do what you're describing? Because I feel like, you know, you're not a black Southerner. Right. Um, no. You know, you're a, you're a little bit of a transplant. I'm trying to understand how that actually took place and how you incorporate that to then create Wishbone. And also, in addition to that, have this beautiful culture at the restaurant. It sounds like a lot of things happened to create you. You know, it is funny how it, works its way into your your being, you, you take it for granted. I wish I had spent more time, you know, with my grandmother and my, you know, in the kitchen. I mean, obviously, holiday meals and stuff were, I mean, it was important, but, you know, my father was uh, a teacher, and then, and actually, going to New Jersey, I will say that I got you know, suddenly I'm with kids. I, I, I kind of went wayward. I lived with the black family uh, that I worked, you know, the lady that I worked for. I moved out of the house at 15, and um, I don't know. It was the times. I will say, you know, it's the late 60s, early 70s, and, and my poor mom wasn't equipped to handle New Jersey. You know, she'd always get her pocket picked, or, you know, she was miss, you know, never locked doors, and she was just a friendly she, you know, she's the artist too. I, I got to point out of all the paintings in the restaurant were my mom's, and uh, she was a, a big personality. And but, you know, at fifteen, I felt I should be able to do what I wanted, and uh, <laughs> it didn't really, 
so poor thing had a you know. You she, can relate. Esther. I gave her some gray, gray hair. I can't uh, relate to being fifteen and doing whatever I want. My, my parents are immigrants. I didn't do anything. Um, yeah, I no, love I, that. Uh, yeah, but one thing that strikes me when you walk into Wishbone is the paintings and just oh, the yeah. pops of color. And those paintings are beautiful. I didn't realize your mom had done that. Oh yeah, that's amazing. No, that the restaurant is full of those. Of yeah. They're, they're great, and it really adds to the vibe of the place. So your mom being a painter, did you grow up considering yourself a creative person? No, not at all. In fact, um, I, I will say my younger brother definitely had more of her, like, vi- you know, the visual talent. But uh, I guess in looking back on it, you know, I, I had, first of all, I didn't, I couldn't read I was dyslexic. I had, you know, so, and in those days, they didn't really know what that even was. So, and I will give my mom credit for, you know, taking me to this tutor. And I remember this German lady, and she, you know, she actually got me to read, but I read it late. So I didn't feel creative in that sense. How but, old were um, you? Eight or nine. Wow. Yeah. Okay. My mom really stuck with it and got me to, you know, and even when I started writing, I would write in mere handwriting and things like that. So, um, so no, I didn't, you know, I had teachers tell me, oh, don't worry about it, just keep taking wood shop and you'll be all right, you know, that type of thing. How did Wishbone become and how did you get your brothers to join? I was getting fed up with working in the corporate type of environment and I I thought I, my goal was then to open a little restaurant just do breakfast and lunch and be in charge of our own destiny so when I moved here Greg was really instrumental and in, you know we found the place on Grand Avenue and uh, we really had a great loyal clientele a lot of interesting people we, you know, we'd get the band, you know, it was, yeah, it was a real mix. Even Grand Avenue was a really mixed bag of customers. And, you know, we, you know, from the motorcycle headquarters that was next door that, and then we had, you know, Joey the Clown and all those guys, you know, we, it was a real mixed bag at the restaurant. When that restaurant shut down because you moved to the larger one, that was also traumatic. Yeah. (laughs) Right? I mean, talk about that. I feel like you've had these moments where you've had to change and grow, whether when you left Grand, it was too small because you were wildly popular. Right. Then you went to Washington and became even more wildly popular. And now, um, in some ways still wildly popular, but the community became wildly popular, which of course raised the rent. And now you're in a whole nother space. So you've had quite a few business transitions over time. How have you managed to stay in business with all those flips and changes and turns? Because a lot of entrepreneurs and small business owners could never, ever manage and maintain that and still keep going. Well, in in hindsight, I will say, Wish I had been smarter about real estate because uh, <laughs> you would have not, bought some, right? <laughs> I would have bought some of the property because, you know, unfortunately, it is the old scenario of you know you start out and because the rent's low and and you know you don't have a lot of money to start a business and then 
suddenly the neighborhood gets up and and next thing you know you're priced out of what you helped you know start but um you got to roll with the punches and we have seen a lot of changes but i also kind of equate the restaurant as being like a mouth that you just have to kind of feel in you know like uh expanding is it's good and bad it can be you know at, at one time when we had the two restaurants going it makes it harder and then you brought up moving from Grand to the bigger place. And I remember a lot of the regular customers then thought we had, like, sold out, you know, because it's like we went from this little storefront, which everybody loved, to Washington, which was this great big place. Um, But when I did do Washington, I wanted to have a cafeteria. So in those, you know, we had the cafeteria on one side and table service on the other, because that neighborhood, after five o'clock, it was dead, it, you know. But there were a lot of businesses down there during the day, so we were kind of, you know, at lunch, we were lucky right away in having a really good breakfast and lunch business at Washington. Yeah, I mean, Esther, um, the thing that's really, you know, striking to me when I hear the story is. I think Joel is underestimating not only the location, but just the culture that he created where people felt like they owned it. And it was part of their, you know, their life and their family and how they want to see themselves, you know, as they're moving through the day. Um, But when I when I used to visit the Washington location, that was when Oprah was in town. Right. What was that like? Well, yeah, I mean, I listened. Oprah was a great neighbor to have, put it that way. She, uh, <laughs> you think, <laughs> Esther? You think? Because everybody, everybody thought Oprah. You know, she did her show in there. She sent guests there, and and she mentioned us a lot on her show. And it was a fun time over there. Really, it's you know, uh, we used to be able to close down the street. We had our big black party. You know, every year we'd have this huge solstice party, we'd call it. And, you know, we'd set up a stage. We had, you know, So we weren't good business people, but we knew how to put on a show. And, um, I mean, I say we're not good business people in that we weren't, uh, you know, my only object was to keep people coming in the door. And, you know, we, you know, labor-wise and everything else, we weren't as... Because it's part of the reason I left the corporate world. It was just too nuts and bolts, and everything was about your food cost and labor cost. And 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 I'm not dismissing that that's not important. It's just that, you know, we, I mean, we didn't, obviously, we didn't do well with real estate and we, you know, things like that, but we we had fun. And, and you got to keep it that way somewhat. How were you able to translate with all of the different moves? How were you able to keep the culture alive? And what did you do when you were going into those new spaces to, to to make sure that you were still able to kind of continue what you were doing at the previous places and evolve? Well, they did kind of build off of each other. As When you mentioned Grand, there were a lot of regulars that were, you know, disappointed with us that we you know they they had this i know they it, it's kind of you know it was they loved the little one they didn't really want us to change but in a way we had to change you know it was uh it 
it was small and you know there's good and bad about it but you know you end up having to work every you know i i never got a day off at what you know we would close on mondays uh, back then but but you know as you start getting staff and then as families came in too because then suddenly my brother started working there my sister-in-law started working you know and they want to make more, you know, and there's only so much you can do with a the small restaurant. So when Lewis, who of any properties, you know, he was a customer that would come in a lot, and he just loved it. And he he's the one that kind of talked me into moving, you know, down to this on Washington, which at the time was an abandoned tire bill. You know, it was hard to envision uh, how that would work. Um, but I did like the neighborhood. You know, I, I liked the f- fact that there were businesses around there. I felt like I could keep my same clientele. Um, and and I had that dream about doing the cafeteria. I always, you know, down south, cafeterias are kind of, and I think if they're done right, sorry, didn't really work out, but people's schedules have changed so much too. But, you know, cafeterias, when they're done right and you have the volume, it's, you know, the food doesn't sit on a steam table. It's fresh. It's good. And and our goal was to have a lot of selections. Like we wanted, you know, sides were such a big part of it, you know, aside from, let's say, the entree. It was that you have these choice of different sides. And so... The cafeteria was fun, you know, did and you, we did that at lunchtime. Only. Did you, did you feel that um, scaling was really challenging for you? A lot of businesses have difficulty scaling. You know, they they want to stay small, and there's actually um, a train of thought where staying small is a good thing. Right. Did you find that really tough? Because you said you didn't have the vision that you know your friend did. That was that was part owner of Annie Properties. What was that like to suddenly become this giant restaurant? It, it was intimidating. I, I, you know, I remember the first week. And I will say, uh, as opposed to today where, you know, first impressions are so important. Like when we did open, you know, we made a lot of mistakes. It was, you know, we're still trying to operate like the line, how we had it on Grand and this and that. And suddenly there's a hundred more seeds. So, you know, it really, it, it was, you know, we, you end up throwing labor at it and it's kind of, it was. Throwing labor at it I, I mean, just because it, yeah, because you're going from 50 seeds to 160, 190 seeds was, yeah, it was a big change. She sparkled, she sparkled, she danced in the sand. I fell So you were talking about when you guys were near Oprah and near the United Center, you would be able to shut down the street, but you weren't necessarily the best business people. So after 30 years and a lot of trial and error, how has your view of entrepreneurship changed over these last 30 years? It's not as much fun, put it that way. You you have to be a lot more, you know, do the things and try to compete with the chains and and the, the corporate things. And I hate it, but it's kind of a necessary evil now. 
So you've mentioned fun a lot. And you also mentioned something else that I, I hear from um, successful business owners, which is hiring for personality. Right. They didn't ex- exactly say pray for skill, but I always think that's <sighs> interesting because you can't really teach personality to a certain extent. Um, so what type of personality do you look for when you're trying to hire people? Because I definitely get a very distinct, warm, welcoming, relatable, you know, amiable energy every time I go into Wishbone and everything from the t-shirts to the way people look at you and ask you if you need anything. So what are some of those traits that you look for when you're hiring? Well, I think you hit a good point there because there are certain things you can't teach. I mean, you know, we've all been in places where it's just the formality, you know, hi, I'm, you know, my name's Jan, I'm your server and this and that. But, uh, you know, I think a person has to have, to be in the restaurant business, some people think, oh, well, I'll just do it because I'm in school and I can make my, but uh, you have to like people. Uh, I mean, it is somewhat like theater. You know, you can't, you got to be on, you got to, you know, and it's a little harder now. There's so many restaurants, it's harder to find one that they're competent and nice, you know. Why? I blame cell phones. I blame uh, all the other stuff. I blame, I blame the way people are, you know, raised now and and uh, manners. You know, I think manners are important. And being a southern restaurant, uh, I mean, we were always raised to, you know, be considerate. You know, you had to be, you know, look their guest in your house. You know, what what would I want? you know, and that type of thing. I don't hit it all the time, but I, I think the hiring is important that, you know, at least you look for traits where they're kind and nice, you know, and, yeah, and that... pray for the rest. No. <laughs> so how do you course correct along the way? Because, um, you know, oftentimes when people have their own specific brand and they're at kind of the center of it, you know, with your mom doing the paintings and with you loving the food and kind of pushing the direction, a lot of the secret sauce is in the founder or the owner. And so oftentimes I see that the challenge is trying to find people that you can teach certain ways of doing things that make it special or that complement. So how do you course correct along the way and say like, well, actually I don't want, I would prefer it if you kind of said it like this or did it like that. Uh Did that come naturally to you? It's funny, the old staff, they used to, you know, consider me the real volatile, you know, like I was, like my brother Guy was like the diplomat. He was the nice one they would all go to, and then I was like the crazy guy in the kitchen. But with staff, I think I was a lot more, you know, demanding. And now I do kind of, I mean, it's funny, being the kitchen guy, you kind of have this animosity towards the weight staff. You know, they made more money, they worked less hours, we're doing all the heavy lifting. But then you start realizing how important that front of the house staff is. So when you're an owner, you realize, okay, I can't just be yelling and like, you know, it, it, it's, their job is, it's different, but it's no less demanding, put it did that way. You, did you get um, feedback a lot from your staff and employees or did you just stand back and observe these things? I mean, how would you know if you were on the right track with things or if you did step over the line or if you didn't step over the line enough? I mean, how did you 
figure out and learn that over time since you did say there's a lot of trial and error with the business. I mean, you yeah. didn't go to business school. Yeah, no. I mean, we all make mistakes, but you have to have a sense of how to deal with people. You know, in regards to staff, there are ones that I've tried to train that really just don't, you know, they, they want to stay doing what they do. And then there's others. You know, uh, my sous chef right now, he, he started as a pot washer. But I always got the sense that he wanted to pick up different things and, and do things. And now he's he's been with me for not only many years, but he's he's a rock on brunch. You know, he kind of runs the the whole line at brunch. And But then as the staff increase and you go from, you know, let's say 15 employees to, you know, 60 or more, uh, uh, we, well, at one time, yeah, we were, it's it's harder and the dynamics change. And then it, you know, it did become more, you know, I hate to say that, but that's not my job or, you know, people, it, it's just a different, you know, a large place is harder to run in that respect because how do, how do you keep them like, you know, you want, you want the staff to enjoy it being there, you know, but, but hey, you know, the show's on, we got to produce, and, you know, and I, I really try to st- uh, stress with the wait staff that, you know, these guys in the kitchen depend on you doing your job. You know, if you're not out there making it so the person wants to come back, regardless of how good the food is, you have to have good service. And, uh, you know, or at least friendly, as you stated before, where they feel comfortable. And that's important. Where do you get your energy from? Because this sounds like a very hectic and gritty business. And it seems like there have been setbacks and opportunities for growth and challenges and pivots. How do you just say, OK, we're, we're going to keep doing this regardless of what happens? Yeah, it's a funny thing. I mean... Even with this recent, it was kind of having to leave Washington, you know, there, my wife included, you know, were like, you know, give it a, you know, you know, you've been doing this for so long that, uh, but, you know, it's somewhat a pride thing. And it's also, you know, I I just, I didn't want to go out like that, Mm. you know. Mm. Um, I love that you said that. I love it. Yeah. I love it. So, I mean, that's. And also, uh, some of it was the staff. Again, I have people that have worked there a long time, and just hanging it up like that would have been a little rough. Although now I'm back in debt. No, I'm. <laughs> but you know, no, it was it was hard moving. You know, building community today when you're launching a business is so challenging. I mean, I feel like so much harder. It's so much harder. I mean, when I started my business in 1997 and I became incorporated in '99. It was not hard for me to meet people and to build a network to help me grow my business. And I and and those were good times in that respect because I didn't have to have a rich ecosystem on Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn to find the right people to help me grow the business and to help me learn. It just wasn't it wasn't like that. It was a human experience. And um, some of the relationships that I developed then um um, are still with me today and have helped me sustain and grow it. And I can count on the community because they were based in an authentic relationship. I don't even know how people that are starting today 
can grow and build the way things are built, the way the way things the way that we built things back in those days, and how do they, how does it feel real? Um, because I remember when I used to go to Wishbone with with my husband, even when I, I used to go alone and and you know, um, get all kinds of amazing meals. But um, you know what what does it take now? You know what does it take, Joe? Like what would you what would you tell someone today if they wanted to do what you did this week? I do think people are so inundated with so much stuff, you know, that it is harder to have that community feel. And, you know, at the time when you were starting out, like you said, you could call somebody up and have a face-to-face and you were, you know, you had a a connection. But now I think people are so bombarded with either the social media, our attention spans are just not there. And wouldn't you also suggest that I believe I was able to withstand the ups and downs of the economy because of my community. I had people that I could call on for help when things were going south. And, you know, I wonder today, how does that work? Because we haven't had a downturn since, I think, 2007, 2008. We're going to have another one because this is just the nature of the business is you have a downturn. But if you don't have an authentic community as you're growing a business or even starting one, who are you going to call when things, you know, go bad? Yeah. I think there's going to be a, a somewhat of a turn where people want to have a server. They want to have, you know, where it's not just all fast. The, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I get it. There's time is money and, and, and all that, but people need to slow it down a little bit, be able to feel a connection to a place. And I think if you, you know, just stick with that, scenario of like, hey, you know, this is who we are and not try to be something you're not, it'll translate into a good business. Thank you so much, Joel, for telling us about your beautiful restaurant and the amazing food and the amazing experience in your journey. It's been such a journey. Um, You being a Chicago staple, I mean, it's amazing to, to kind of explore your mind and your experiences mm-hmm. and your process a little bit. I'm Esther. I'm Ginger. And Joel Nixon. And uh, thank you both for, uh, it's nice sitting back and actually having a conversation about it because it, you're always so caught up in the day-to-day that, you know, it, it has been uh, an interesting journey. And hopefully we'll keep on keeping on. I fell apart She slipped through my hands She sparkled She sparkled She danced The Honest Field Guide podcast is produced by Burke Creative, written and created by Ginger Birkenbuehl and Esther Coro. The podcast is recorded in the innovation and technology capital of the Midwest, Chicago, at Stomping Ground Studios in Ukrainian Village. Original music is written by and provided courtesy of Utah Carroll. Follow Honest Field Guide on Instagram and Twitter. The opinions expressed on the Honest Field Guide are opinions only and only represent the views of Ginger Burke and Buell and Esther Ikoro. Sand, sand, sand.